It's the Deadline Junkies Screenwriting Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Amiola, Kirsten Porter, and Rand Shammy. All right. Our guest today is Michael Jammin. He's written and executive produced on many shows, including King of the Hill, The Beavis and Butthead Reboot, Wilfred, and Tacoma FD. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. Hi. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. We, are, we have many questions for, t- for you today, and we'll start with what made you want to start writing in the first place? Oh, well, I, even as a kid, I wanted to be a writer. Then in, in high school, I wanted to, I loved Cheers. And I was like, I want to be a writer on Cheers, you know, whatever. Uh, but then I, after, high, after college, I moved out to LA to pursue a, a career in, in TV writing and, and it's been working almost ever since. Did you ever do any like fan fiction or like a spec script while you were like at Cheers or anything like that when you were in high school and you wanted to write for Cheers? Uh, well, and that, I didn't even know what fan fiction was back then. I wrote spec scripts in college. I knew what that was, but uh, I never fan, I, you know, not, fan fiction is not, no, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know some kids that would do that. They, um, without even knowing what fan fiction was, but just. No, I was just writing bad fiction. That was what I was into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so then how did you end up on Lois and Clark? Your first show, right? That was the first freelance that I, I sold with my partner. Um, I, at the time I was working, well, a couple of years before that I was working for some uh, TV producers and, uh, and then they went on to create, uh, they wanted to run Lois and Clark. And I came back and I said, Hey, can you, um, you know, can I pitch you an episode? This is after working with them for a couple of years. And they were gracious enough to let us pitch, which is like a big deal when you're two nobodies. Uh, and they liked, they liked uh, one of the episodes they bought it. And that was, that was that. Nice. Do you have a favorite show you've worked on or a favorite experience? You know, the, you know, my, the first, well, the first staff job was just shoot me. And that was just a wonder, it might've been like the most exciting experience because that was my first time doing it in Hollywood on a regular basis. That was very exciting, but I wouldn't say, I mean, I had so many fun jobs since then. I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite or anything, but that was certainly the most exciting time. Awesome. Yeah. We love just shoot me. I mean, uh, when I was growing up, I watched it all the time. Um, yeah. do, you any, do, you have, do you have any good stories with just shoot me? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's a ton of good. The cast was lovely. We we had a reunion with the cast eh, maybe uh, six or seven years ago, uh, just hanging out with them on the lot. They're just they were. It was always a fun group. The, the cast genuinely liked each uh, liked each other. They hung out and they hung out with the writers. It was really, um, it really was a magical time uh, being involved in that. And I was, I got to work side by side with many writers, uh, some writers who wrote on Taxi and who wrote on Cheers. And so to me, it felt like a big deal to be working next to them and learning from them. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of my favorites was, well, characters was uh, Nina Van Horn. And I was wondering if you have any good stories with with that character and writing her. Well, that was played by Wendy Malick, who's just lovely. And yeah, my partner and I, we wrote a bunch, at least in the first four years, we wrote a lot of Nina episodes. We would just come up with ideas for Nina because I, like you, we love that character so much. She's Amazing. Yeah. 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 So that was, that was us. A lot of that was us. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, as no. an audience member, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, but you know, they're all, I mean, honestly, the, the, what a great cast that was. That was, and it really was an exciting time because that show was up and coming and it was, this was back when people were watching sitcoms on TV and it was, these were big times, not anymore. You'd, you'd wait for, for that Thursday night or Friday night or whatever to watch yeah, the Thursday, show. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. NBC must, must be TV. Yeah. Yes, right. that's right. <laughs> Do you have any uh, like big lessons you've learned when writing for that show? 
I remember, uh, you know, the first, the first season for sure, I felt very over my, you know, in water over my head. Um, I felt uh, I was a pretending, I felt really, you know, I was, uh, it was fake it till you make it. And I remember we'd all be pitching on jokes and the room that all the writers were so funny on that show. It was very intimidating. And they would be, be pitching and I'd be laughing. I wasn't even pitching, I'm laughing. And, I'm, and I just knew this is not good because I'm not getting paid to laugh. I'm getting paid to pitch, right? And, uh, and I just couldn't beat any of the writers to the punch. They were just so good. And then I remember talking to Marsh McCall, who was, uh, he was, at the time he had just finished running the Conan O'Brien show. And I was like, man, I, I don't know. I can't beat these guys. And he gave me some really good advice that I've always, that really changed the game for me. And it was, you're, he said, you're never going to beat them. They're too fast. So you can't, if everyone's pitching down this one line of thought, you're not going to beat them. You could go around and find another way to get to the joke. And it didn't even occur to me that there's more than one way to get to the joke. I really didn't. Hmm. And I was like, oh, and after yeah, that, the way he explained it, it, just it really opened everything up for me. And then, and then forget it. Then, I, then it was like I was off to the races. How do you actually overcome that feeling of not feeling as quick as the writers? I feel like it's a common feeling uh, amongst, for instance, support staff in writers' rooms. Yeah. What would you say to them when they have those experiences? Well, opening your mouth to pitch a, a particularly a joke, even, or anything, but especially a joke, is one of the most intimidating things you can do because if it doesn't get a laugh, it's just going to lay there and you're going to look like an idiot. Just no way around. People may be polite, but they know you're, you know, you're not, you're not real left. And so a good tip is always to have a backup. If you have a joke and it bombs, have a backup, have a backup to get, a, as long as you can get a laugh, if people will forget, even if it's not on story, as long as you can get a laugh somehow to the situation, people will remember the laugh. And that's the most important thing. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, it's, I guess, was there anything else I had to say about that? Maybe, but I already forgot. I already bored myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, have you been working in Zoom rooms? I mean, you, you just spoke a, a lot about laughing and I feel like pitching a joke in a Zoom room isn't quite the same as uh, it once was. Yeah, that's another thing. That's what I was gonna say. If you wind up, if you wind up and you say, I have a joke, it's already dead. Yeah. So you have to toss it off like you don't even give a shit. Uh, that's how you do it. And, and I'm, and <laughs> I'm particularly good at that, where I kind of lean into the toss and I just, and I run in case the, in case it bombs. Uh, but on Zoom, it's a little different. You have to get everybody's attention because, yeah. yeah. And so the show I'm currently on, Tacoma FD, uh, it's on Zoom. So for the past two seasons. Wow. So it's a little trickier. Yeah. Do you have a favorite joke that you just like love of like all time, or all the jokes you've written prior to your shows? People ask me that. I don't remember half the things I, I honestly do not remember them. <laughs> And I think that's important because uh, jokes are disposable and people think they're precious. Oh, my favorite joke. And if it doesn't get in, what will happen? And now it's like, if it doesn't get in, I'll, I don't care. I'll come up with another one. Mm-hmm. Stories are not disposable, but jokes are disposable. Okay. So you can forget about the good jokes easily, but can you forget about the failed ones? Do you have any uh, failed ones that are burnt in your brain? Yeah. When I, I think it was just shoot me. We were, uh, my partner and I were writing a script and, and I wanted to put this joke in and he's like, that's not funny. I'm like, um, it's very funny. Trust me. It's not funny. You don't know what you're talking about. It's funny. And I insisted we put it in. So we put it in, it gets to the table read and the joke just dies. It just bombs. 
Only I start laughing. Therapy goes so wrong. I'm laughing. This is the place I've ever been through. And because I'm laughing, everyone thinks my partner wrote the joke. And now they're looking at him, calling him out for a shitty joke. And now I'm laughing even harder. That's how you sell your partner out. Awesome. How long have you been with your partner, your running partner? We've been writing together since the early 90s. Oh, wow. awesome. How'd you guys, can you tell us about him? Like, what's his name? How'd you guys meet? His name is Sievert Glam. He's extremely, extremely talented writer. We were both teamed up. Um, we, were, we were both signed individually by uh, an agent, talent agent. And then she teamed up. We were interested in writing with a partner. She teamed us up. Nice. Are you both on to come after you right now? Yeah, we do. Every, we do everything together except for this, uh, a book that I'm writing on the side, but everything else we do together. What nice. makes a successful partnership, writing partnership? It's, I mean, it's, it is literally like a magic, uh, like a marriage. I mean, we've been together for longer than many people have been married. Uh, at this point, it's, it's, there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of, um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think either one of us cares if it's our idea. I don't care if it's mine, if it's his. If it's his, he's got a better idea. Let's do it. Whatever gets me home earlier, is, that's the one we want to do. Uh, so there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of, you know, we don't really fight over if, once once you've done it for long enough, your ego goes out the window. It's no longer about the excitement of seeing your words on the screen. It's really more about okay, this is the job, and how do we serve the story? Because the story is the ultimately is the boss. What's the best path to, to to serve the story? And then we get to go home and throw any bad jokes, uh, the blame for any bad jokes at them. Yeah, I mean, he mostly yeah. you know that's most mostly my category, my specialty. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, what, what's the division of labor like in your writing partnership? Do you split scenes or do you co-write no. them in a room together? Yeah, we literally sit in the same room together. We have uh, one laptop with two monitors. And so we literally pitch the lines out loud. We say every line of dialogue out loud. Uh, it, it might be less important for drama, but for a comedy, you don't know if it's funny until someone laughs. Mm -hmm. So I definitely feel I've worked with a lot of writing partners and a lot of, uh, in a lot of teams and a lot of individuals. And I always feel like the teams tend to put together tighter scripts simply because you had to, yeah, really have that extra step. Is it funny or not? Yeah. So I, I enjoy your podcast. Um, Thank you. I know, yeah, yeah. I know you talk about uh, like working your way up um, from like staff writer to uh, uh, executive producer to showrunner. Can you tell us like, what's the biggest challenge you face on becoming a showrunner? Well, so the next step below showrunner is co-executive producer and you know, many people spend years at that level before getting the bump to showrunner. Now, it's co-execs a pretty sweet gig. And the money's good and you don't have all the responsibility, but you're always, no matter who you are, you're always going to second best guess your boss. You're always going to think you can do it better than the boss. Then when you finally get the, the bump to, you know, showrunner, like the difference is, is really high and there's a lot more pressure a lot more responsibility. And it all comes down to having the confidence of knowing story structure, how to break a story. And that's the biggest hurdle is knowing, cause you have to, you know, you're breaking the stories, you're figuring out what all the beats are. And then when you go to the table read and something bombs, it's on you to figure out why it's not working and how to fix it fast. And, and, you know, all the writers, they, you know, they want to go home. They don't want to be there till midnight because you can't make a decision. You have to make a decision and hopefully make make the right one. I'm similar yeah. to uh, being a director. Being the director? Yeah, I've like being decisive. Yeah, make a decision. You know, yeah. even if it's wrong, make a decision. Yeah, that's awesome advice. Um, 
And you're by, by the way, for our listeners, the podcast is called uh, Screenwriters Need to Hear This. Yeah. So ch- check Don't it out. It. kind of going back to just shoot me uh david spade is also on rules of engagement you've also worked on that show is that a coincidence that david spade was on both those shows yeah yeah i mean we we were hired you know what how did we get in rules we had a a deal at we we had an overall deal at cbs productions and they they stuck us on the show as part of (laughs) to work work off our salary and just so happens that spade was there and so yeah spade is he's a pleasure he's a pro uh, you know, he always brings it on show night. He's very easy to work with. Any good David Spade stories? Uh, you know, any good David? I don't. I don't really know. I'm, I'm certainly not at liberty to his stories, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I guess I don't really have any good Spade stories. But you know, again, he's you pitch him a, a joke, and he'd say, "I don't really want to do that." And you say, "Okay, we'll think of something else." He goes, well, eh, "Let me just try it." And then he, really on show night, he would just try it and get a huge laugh. I mean, that's just how he is. He's, he's just, you know, he's really good at what he does. Yeah. That was a good story, though. Right. Yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then jumping forward in your career, you did King of the Hill. And um, the blue collar families in Texas are represented very well, uh, very accurately. From what I've heard, I'm not from Texas, so I don't actually know. I just know a bunch of people who say that. And I was wondering how are you from Texas? How are you able to to write that? Well, no, I'm from New York, but there were a lot of uh, Texans, Texas writers on our show to help keep the authenticity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we also took one year we took a, a road trip, not a road trip, but we, we took a field trip to to Texas to kind of absorb the local culture. Um, nice. But that's how that's how it was. And you, if you had a question about something, one of the one of the local writers would help you out. Did you ever, as a New Yorker, just roll your eyes at these uh, Texans and <laughs> have a totally different experience from your childhood? Uh, you know, the thing about Texas, it, when you go there, it's it's not the state of Texas; it's the Republic of Texas, and they're very proud of it. They have the flag, and it's a very different culture. And so you want to honor that. And uh, I wouldn't roll my eyes, but you would ask, you know, you, I would ask other writers, really? That's how, that's how you guys do it there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so where did the Texan writers come from? Were they based in L.A. or oh, yeah. did people uh, go there out? There were writers who moved to L.A. to pursue the dream and, and then and broke in. Um, yeah. Nice. There, were, there were several of them, yeah. I think Bobby Hill is probably my favorite character in the show. Um, were there any challenges you had? writing a preteen or teenager main character? You know, we don't, I honestly didn't even, you don't even think of him as a child because he's so, <laughs> he's so emotionally intelligent. Um, no, I mean, no, it was, you just think back to your own child. What are things that you, you know, obviously girls in high school, stuff like that. So it's just, it wasn't that, it wasn't as hard uh, as you might think it is to, to channel, to channel uh, Bobby Hill. He's not for me. Was he similar to your, you as a child? Uh, he was probably cooler. <laughs> Bobby Hill. <laughs> Bobby Hill had Bobby Hill had more confidence than me. Bobby oh, okay. Had okay. <laughs> no. Were there any character any characters in all your career that you've had trouble like trying to tap into? Not that I'll not that I'll admit. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. What you usually do is you pitch in their voices. Once you you know, part of the job of the writer is to really listen and to hear how people talk, and then. You, you know, actually, when we were doing, my partner and I ran a show called Marin with uh, starring Mark Marin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of that, I'd literally be sitting next to Mark all the day, you know, because he was one of the writers and we sit all the time. 
And I remember pitching a line and he looked at me because I'd never say that. And I go, you absolutely would say it. I've heard you say that. <laughs> he was like, I do? Yeah, man. That's what you say. He's like, really? So like, you know, that's part of the, the deal. You listen to them and you mimic them. You make fun of them by mimicking, you know. Yeah. Did, he, did he say that line in the show? Oh, I'm sure he did. I'm, 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 I'm sure he did. Yeah. He was a good sport. He just was like, I didn't realize I, I said that. I, you know, he talked like that. Yeah, man. That's because I'm a- <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite characters from King of the Hill is Boomenhauer. And um, I love, I mean, you can't really understand anything he's saying. No. I can't. Um, so how do you go about writing a character who the audience isn't going to understand what they're saying? Well, he wasn't, first of all, he never said anything important. You know, I mean, you never got information out of him. So it really didn't matter if you understood it. It was just like an attitude. You dang old man talking about it. And then you're like, okay, Boomenhauer is, you know, he's, he's getting his thoughts out, but it doesn't really matter what he says. You could just tell by his attitude that he approved or didn't approve. And that was it, but he wouldn't deliver any important exposition or pipe. Like he was, you know, <laughs> you know there are not many Boomhauer stories on that show either. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So what How would you write his dialogue? Literally dang old. And then you, you write some other mishmash words in there and then talking about <clears throat> I've <had> some <laughs> other words. Okay. There was a real art to it in the beginning. Uh, Mike had a real, um, yeah. So you know, you kind of ask the other writers, "Hey, is this sound right?" What was the purpose of that character then, besides being just somebody to love? I think it was. I think that's part of the local Texas culture. Is like there are people who have a thick, you know, uh, drawl or accent you you can't understand, and that's part of their charm. And that's what people in Texas say. They go, "Yeah, that's my father-in-law," you know, whatever. I don't know what. He's- <laughs> So that's just about the authenticity. You didn't really add much uh, in terms of plot, usually. Mm-hmm. Nice. So speaking of another Mike Judge show, Beavis and Butthead, could you talk about how you got onto Beavis and Butthead? That was a couple of years later. And the showrunners uh, of King of the Hill, you know, we were friends with, we worked with on a number of times. And they, um, they wound up taking over the new Beavis and Butthead which is, that's all done by freelance. So they, they need freelance episodes. So they reach out to me and my partner. They said, hey, do you guys want to pitch a couple of freelances? And we're like, yeah. So uh, again, we, we pitched, I don't know, whatever, 10. We sold, I think, four or something. And then we would go in uh, to the record session. We literally watch music videos on a laptop. And, and we sit with Mike and we watch his videos. And then we poke fun of the people in the videos. And then Mike would nod and he'd go into the booth and do it as, as Beavis and Butthead. But the other parts were scripted. The, the storylines were all scripted. How is the freelance writing experience different from being in a room? And do you have a preference? Well, you don't make much money as a freelancer. I mean, I mean you know, you can't, you can't even make a living writing freelance. So this was just something we did on the side because we wanted to say we wrote for Beavis and Butthead. It was, it was like fun. Uh, so, yeah, the preference is to be a staff writer, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a low-budget show, so they didn't have a staff. So you worked with a ton of showrunners, uh, like 13, 14 different shows. Uh, do you have a favorite showrunner? Or do you have any like, advice from a showrunner you've learned that you've kind of kept with you? I, you know, I've worked, I've learned from so many great showrunners. Steve Levitan, Chris Lloyd, and Greg Daniels are some of the bigger ones. Um, and you can learn, you know, I, I, you know, I kept a book. What else? Here it is. I got my book. Here's my book. And I would just, every time I learn something, I just, I write it down. Um, and so, yeah, they all have a different way uh, of approaching, of approaching story, but very thoughtfully. Uh, and that's how you really learn story structure, which is the goal, right? That's, that's everything in writing jokes are not in the, you know, in the beginning, 
more, at least back in the day, you could divide a writer in comedy. You'd be like a joke person or you're a story person. That's what people would ask. Mm. You, you just ordinarily, you just line up into two different camps. And I certainly was a joke person in the beginning. My partner was more of a story person. But as I progress in my career, I'm definitely half and half now because story is, you know, story is everything. The jokes, whatever. You can come up with more jokes, but the story has to hold together. So when you became a showrunner, um, how did you find your your method, <laughs> your way of being a showrunner? Yeah, um, that was something my partner, we, we, when we took that first job, we reached out to our old you know, mentors and were like, hey, any advice? What's your advice? And they said, yeah, this, you know, this is how many stories you need to break per week. This is uh, you know, things like I just told you, like make a decision, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, but also, you know, when you're at this point, we'd already been writing for, I don't know, at least 10 years or so. So it's like you're watching them do it. And that's how you learn. The problem, I think, sometimes now is when people get to that place of showrunner too fast and they're not ready. There's so much, you know, you, you really need the time. Uh, I certainly wasn't ready the first several years of my career. No way. Um, so, yeah, experience counts for a lot. Uh, to shift topics, I personally was a huge fan of Wilfred, so I'm wondering what was it like to adapt an Australian series for an American audience? What did you have to take into account and why did you change what changed? Well, so yeah, so that show was created by Jason Gann in Australia and then David Zuckerman, uh, who we work with on King of the Hill, ran, um, he did the American version and he kind of took all the, what he thought was the, the best parts of the Australian version and kind of put it into a pilot and kind of re kind of reconceived it in a little bit um, to make what, what I thought was an excellent pilot. And then he hired, obviously went to series, he hired a staff to help create other storylines. Mm -hmm. So, but Jason Gann was who played the dog, the, the talking dog. He was in the writer's room the whole time. He's one of the writers. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when we would pitch a storyline, you know, you'd look at him, Hey, can you play that? You know, <laughs> hey, yes or no. Well, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so have you seen the Australian version? Uh, yeah, but I mean, not, you know, a long time ago, I, I watched them. Yeah. But before you started writing on the show, no, I only, only when we were interested in working on the show today, start writing. I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. even heard of it. And then uh, I've heard, I actually, I've seen little bits and pieces of it, but I've heard it's uh, much weirder and darker. And so why did they decide to, uh, you decide, the whole team decide to make it less weird and less oh, dark I didn't at all I mean that was uh <laughs> that was David Zuckerman's decision when he created the pilot but I don't I mean the, the show Wilford was pretty you know from my memory it was it was pretty dark I mean the show is about is about a you had to write every episode it has to had to work on two levels you have a guy uh uh Ryan is the character and his talking his magic talking dog or is Ryan mentally ill and is the dog just a product projection of all his internal thoughts mm -hmm. and so every line of dialogue had to work on both levels and mm -hmm. and so you're dealing about it's a show ostensibly about mental disease and so that's already a little dark um yeah yeah how do you write about mental illness in a compassionate and informative way i don't know if <laughs> I don't know if we did. But, uh, you know, you were just at the other half. You're like, well, that's also we want to see the dog get high and dance too. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know. But it was, you know, it was it, obviously the guy being flipped. But the guy, I'm not sure if we ever diagnosed him as having uh, mental illness, but he was talking to a, an imaginary dog. So there's something going on in him. 
you know, I'm not sure, you know, you, you, you need the, I, I don't know. There's something going on. Yeah. And in the beginning, he's dealing with depression uh, yes. or he's suicidal. So there's that too. Yeah, there's that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you, uh, maybe I, I think you did a great job of right. <laughs> the mental illness. It's <laughs> um, so kind of moving forward to present. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Tacoma FD. What's it like working with the broken lizard people? And did you know them beforehand? No. Um, we, you know, we met on that show. And those guys are great. So Kevin Heffernan and Steve Lemmy created the show. They're two of the, you know, the, the guys from Broken Lizard. And they created the show. Uh, but they, they have a lot of independent movie experience, but they'd never done any TV. And so obviously my partner have a lot of TV. So we were kind of brought on to show them how like, okay, this is how we're going to, this is how we can churn it out on a regular basis and not go crazy. And so that's why they brought us on. Uh, and they're just wonderful. First of all, they're, they're, both those guys are very funny and talented. They're very sweet. Uh, it's very important for them to have a room where like people are cordial and friendly and not mean and it's not nasty. So they just couldn't be easier and more love, easier to work for and just more lovely people. So and then, of course, they're in the room. You pitch a joke or a storyline and you go, hey, what do you guys, you want to play that? Are you OK you playing with that? And, they're like, eh. and then you kind of tone it or you change it to that's the, one of the advantages of having the actor in the room, because, you know, you, you, you know, you, can, you know, if they're going to be able to sell it or not. Do you prefer having the actor in the room? Uh, as a rule, no, you never want to have an actor in the room. But if they are, they're also the showrunner. If they're an actor writer, then yeah. Then if they're the star of the show, yeah. And, and we've worked on a number of shows where that's the case. Then if, if they are, you know, if they created the show and they have that kind of voice, you want them in the room. But if they're just an actor, you, you don't want them in the room. Um, you mentioned the room right now is on Zoom. Uh, how big is the room? And also, do you plan on going back to in person? That's not up to me. That's up to the studios and liability. Um, I, you know, I guess there's like about 10 of us or so in the room, but we just wrapped on, uh, on Friday. So uh, there were about 10 of us, including one or two assistants, maybe. So what are your responsibilities as co-EP? Uh, well, basically it's, the, yeah, it's basically the story structure. So when someone pitches an idea, it's up to the higher level writers to figure out whether this idea has enough meat on the bones. And if so, how do we literally break it on the board? How do we lay it out? What are those moments? What are the act break moments? What are we building to? What's the middle of act two? And so all that structure, that's not, that's not something you would ordinarily know. Like a lot of times you, like I remember as a, as a young writer pitching an idea and not even knowing if it's a good idea or not. And then, and then some other writer would pitch an idea and it would get, it would be well-received. And you're like, well, how did, how did they do that? How do they know? And so that's, that's where I'm at now is I'm the guy who says whether it's a good idea or not, because you, you've been doing that long enough, you know, whether it has enough meat on the bones and then how to, t how to unfold it in such a way that the audience will hopefully be compelled to continue watching. So now you're also teaching screenwriting and yeah. what inspired you to share your knowledge and help up and coming writers? That happened. This, this, been, this has been a long project by, I have a friend, uh, Phil, who, who I co-host the, the podcast with. He went to film school. And, and then when he got out, he was asking me questions, but, you know, read, read my script, that kind of thing. And so I talked to him and I was like, well, that's not how I, we approach story in the real world. And I would sit down and go, this is how I do it. Uh, and then he was like, well, I, why didn't I learn that in film school? And I'm like, I don't know. Can you get your money back? <laughs> and he but he was hounding me to make a course he's like i have so many friends that would feel they would love this like well I, i'm not really interested i don't have the time or whatever and then the pandemic hit 
And I had nothing, but for the first six months, like I had nothing going on. I had no pilots, I had no project, like everything was dead. And I knew it would be. And so I was like, all right, let's make this course, Phil. And so that's how that happened. We, you know, and then of course now, you know, I was back at work about a, maybe a year afterwards, but that was a long, that was about a, that was a long six months. We had nothing going on. How did you meet Phil? Oh, that's a good story. So I didn't know Phil. My wife has a, has a brand of uh, girls clothing called Twirly Girl. And we were building, or she was building a website and she found this company, whatever, in the middle of nowhere. And they, they over-promised and under-delivered. And Phil was working there, uh, you know, as, as, that was part of his job. It was an SEO, uh, search engine optimization. And he was disappointed with how his bosses oversold the company the promise and underdelivered, and he got on the phone with my wife. This is how this is how you get ahead in Hollywood. He got on. He said, "Listen, I'm not getting paid. I'm going to make this right because I don't like what my bosses did to you. I would help fix this as best as I can on my own time. So here's someone who's just giving out of the because he wanted to be a good person, and he was giving, but not asking. He was giving, and then whatever that she's working with her for a couple months, and then." he lets it out that he wants to be a screenwriter. My, my wife's like, Oh, my, that's what my husband does. He would be happy to help you out. And I was, and, and it's only because he had given me so much. He wasn't asking me. He was giving me so much. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So be a good person. Yeah. And then you get ahead in Hollywood. I actually yeah, feel like give, I haven't heard I mean, that. Help people first, you know, cause everyone's always like, help me, help me. It's like, well, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Help someone else, and then they will they will feel compelled to help you because out of their out of guilt. Yeah, <laughs> guilt those people, no. guilt the people with kindness. Yeah. Uh, well, do you have any writing advice you want to rehash for emerging writers who are listening right now? Oh, uh, it's a, yeah. Any advice I have? Uh, so I've been posting every day on social media. Uh, for, I don't know, maybe eight months or something now, every day on TikTok and Instagram. So if anybody wants to, I post every day, daily writing tips on how to be a better writer, how to break into the industry. And you can follow me on Instagram or TikTok at, at Michael Jammin Writer. So don't ask for any, ask for all of my advice. I will give you all of it. Can people ask it. on social media for uh, certain advice and you'll answer it on social yeah, media? Yeah, I mean, I, I say the same thing. If you leave a question, leave a comment. And I feel, if I feel like enough people want to hear the answer, I'll, I'll answer. But if I feel like it's specific to like, you know, just you, I got a long, I got, I keep a long list of questions. So I want to help people. I don't want to just, you know, yeah, help as many people. I don't want to just help one person. So did Phil inspire this uh, social media journey? Yeah. That was also (laughs) from uh, a project I'm working on. I was like, I need a large social media following for a project I'm working on. So I was like, all right, well, how do you do that? Give away everything, you know? So what's, What's the project? Uh, it's a collection of personal essays. Uh, which is forthcoming is called a paper orchestra. And if anyone wants to read a, a sample story from that, you can just go to my, uh, you can go to michaeljammon.com slash story, or you can go to the, my profile and click a paper orchestra in the link and uh, you get a sample story from that. And it, you said personal essays. So is that more focused on um, your career and writing or is it more personal, personal life? It's a little bit of both. I, I've always, I've always been a huge fan of David Sedaris. I mean, I've read everything he's written probably four or five times. And then I was like, man, I, I should probably, like, wonder what that would be like if I did that. And so that, that's what inspired me. I, this is my own version of, you know, stories, but there's the deep, as I say, like, I'm not famous. I'm not a person of note. No one wants to hear what my fourth grade 
you know, teacher thought about me or whatever. I'm not, uh, you know, you know, I'm not a world leader. So the story, the details are from my life, but the stories are really yours. I'm really trying to tell your story, but the details are mine. So it's much less, you really take the ego out of it and you really try to, um, I'm, I'm, I'm always approaching it even as a way uh, a, a television writer or screenwriter would is like, and I feel a strong obligation when I'm writing anything, whether it's a personal essay or a screenplay is uh, I want to make sure I'm entertaining the audience. Cause if I'm not, they'll find something else to do, you know? So I'm not begging them to watch them. I have to give them that is like, you know, don't give them a reason to leave, give them a reason to stay. So I feel very, so when I talk, so some of the stories, it's a long way to answer your question, but yeah. So some <laughs> stories are like how I broke into Hollywood, but not, not because I think, TV writers want to know. I think it's because people want to people want to hear a story about, you know, just someone struggling in their young, you know, early twenties and what that's like and what th that loneliness and that frustration is. And and so it's not like a, it's not like a how to. It's more like you know, hey, we're all human. This is, let's just share these stories. Is there a date we can expect these personal essays to be I'm, released? I'm not quite done. I was at, I got them all. Here. I got. I, I'm I'm constantly working. I have a couple more I have to finish. Uh, and then we'll talk with my, my agent about what the next steps are. Yeah. Ooh. We'll look so, out for it on your social thank media. You. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So you've written a lot of TV shows. Have you ever dabbled into movie writing? Uh, my partner and I, we wrote three movies. We've sold two of them and vowed never to do it again. <laughs> not, if you, like, if you, you know, in film, the director is the boss. Mm -hmm. and the writer is just, you know, okay, the person who writes the script. In TV, the writer really is the boss. The showrunner is the boss, not even the director. So it's just, to me, it's just more satisfying. You can, you know, so movies are getting harder and harder to sell now, but like even 15 years ago, you could make a pretty good living selling movies that never, ever get made, ever. And you could have a big house on Mulholland Drive with a view and everything, and no one's, you have nothing to show for it. You just have the, other than the checks because they don't make movies. They, they buy them, but they don't really make them. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a miracle to get a movie made. And I just, that just doesn't really appeal to me. I wanted to, you know, I can write a TV show in, in three weeks. You're watching it on the air, you know? So to me, that's just more exciting. What were the movies that you sold? We sold two to, um, to 20th Century Fox. And one was, one was uh, called Only Child. It was a high concept movie about a kid, uh, about a spoiled kind of, I guess he was in his, I'm trying to remember. He's like, he's like thirties. He was a spoiled guy who um, wishes his, thinks his life would have been better if he had siblings. Cause then they would help out aging mom and dad. And then one day magic happens and he wakes up and he's got instant siblings who drive him crazy. Uh, <laughs> and the other one was like a teen, kind of like a teen stoner comedy uh, called student teacher. <laughs> that was funny. My partner, cause my partner came up with that idea. It was like, Hey, that's a funny name for a title for a movie, student teacher. So you can figure out what it is about a student who passes himself off as a teacher for a year. <laughs> and did both of those not get made? Yeah, neither got made. They, they sold, we got the check. It, but like I said, movies don't get made. They just mm -hmm. get, they get bought. Mm -hmm. so, and everyone was happy with them. You yeah. know, this only child was killed because at the time they had another project set up called Middle Child at the same studio. And well, so Middle Child killed Only Child but middle child didn't get me. Neither have gotten me. And it's very common. These studios, the executives, there's a lot of turnover. They usually keep a job for two or three years and then they leave for another studio. And then, then that movie's dead. No one's going to resurrect it. There's nothing to be gained by resurrecting. 
they're not going to take it with them. It's not their property. And it's just going to die there because no one, the new person at the studio is not going to take someone else's garbage and try to turn it into gold. They'd rather make their own project and turn it into gold. There's nothing to be gained by taking their project. Uh, so that's why I think both- it's just silly. It's silly to, for me, for, for, I was like, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> so both kids died. Oh, both sad. kids died. <laughs> uh, so do you have a favorite actor or director that you've loved working with? I've worked with so, I mean, so many actors. Uh, directors, uh, I, I, I was Rob Cohen, and who's been a, a, a dear friend who was a, a writer I worked with on many shows and then became a director. And now he just recently directed a bunch of um, Somebody Somewheres. Remember that show, Somebody Somewhere? That was wonderful. Yeah. You know, get a bunch of those. Uh, I love working with him. But also Steve Pink, who directed um, Hot Tub Time Machine. Uh, or did he write it or direct it? I don't know. Sorry, Steve, but he's wonderful. <laughs> and we worked with him on a show uh, on a starring these two YouTubers named Brett and Link. And and I remember in the beginning, um, Steve and I did not get along. And, uh, and but we learned to love each other. And he's a wonderful director, and I, I really trust him with my work. So he's great. Nice. Nice. Uh, you should have him direct your movies uh, <laughs> <laughs> if they weren't dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you've written live action and animation which do you prefer and why when i'm working when i'm working on live action i prefer animation when i'm working animation <laughs> it's, it's just because, well first the problem with animation the hours are pretty good but it tends not to be writers guild it tends to be covered by iatsi or the reanimation guild uh which is not as a good not as a good a union um <laughs> but there are some advantages you can get some great at you get great actor acting talent easy because they're mm-hmm. happy to show up for very little money to sit in front of sit in front of a microphone they don't need hair and makeup and they have fun so i've worked with some wonderfully talent i mean a-list celebrities uh on all the animated shows i've done um uh so that's 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 cool live action sometimes is fun to let's see it on his feet but it just it depends we have a we have a uh, an animated project we're working on now and a live action pilot. So we'll see, we'll see which happens first. Awesome. So you kind of already talked about the movies that weren't produced. Uh, were there any TV shows that like were your passion projects that didn't get produced? Sure. You saw the, I mean, it's, it's similar in, in um, TV. You'll sell a pilot. The odds of selling pilot are very low, but if you sell it, great, you get a check and it could be a sizable check, but the odds of it actually getting <clears throat> shot are very low. And the odds of it, once it gets shot to getting on the air are, like almost non-existent. So yeah, I've made a long career of selling projects that that uh, wind up, you know, in someone's trash can. But um, that's okay, you know. <laughs> part of the that's part of the deal. <clears throat> it's still. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite one? You're like, oh, I wish that one. Oh, listen. Every time you write a script, you go, you, you wish it's this one. I mean, you fall in love with it, and then it's dead. Uh, so I don't think there's one more so than any of the other ones. So you like you, you know, you love it, but also sometimes you'll you'll um, sometimes it, like someone will pitch you an idea. A producer will pitch you their idea, and you're like, eh, I don't know, but you do it anyway, and then you sell it, and then as you start writing it, you fall in love with it, and you forget that it's really their idea because it's yours now. You you, you know, you put so much into it, you you honestly forget that it's theirs, you think it's yours. You mentioned you're currently working on both live action and animated show. Any details you can share about that or is it still under wrap? Not yet, I don't, I don't talk about it until, uh, until the ink is signed. If you think dries, I wanna, <laughs> and then, then I'm like, then I announce, but right now it's, um, 
there's still a couple of things we're waiting on, some details we're waiting on, so. <clears throat> well, we'll keep an ear out. Uh, and we like to end our podcast episodes with a question we ask all our guests, which is, what is your favorite show that you're watching now or of all time? Well, I watched the pilot of Somebody Somewhere. I thought that was one of the best pilots I, I've ever seen. It was so, it was messy in a, in a, in a perfect way and in, in, in not over explained. It was a little like, what, what's this? I'm not sure what's going on here. And you have to catch up to it. Uh, and so I thought that was beautifully done because it was not perfect. It was intentionally a little, a little dirty and it was wonderful. So I love that. I watched uh, Severance, which I love. Um, what was the other question? Another, you had, what was the second part? Of all time. Of all time, probably <laughs> my favorite shows of all time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I guess you'd, I would, <clears throat> I, I like, I tend to look at things from a point of view as a, as a writer. And I remember watching, finishing Breaking Bad and thinking, like, was this written by God and just given to them? <laughs> like, it was, everything was so perfect. I was like, how did they do that? Uh, but that's drama. And I don't, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a drama writer, but I was just, I was blown away by how amazingly written it was. If you could do the reboot, would you do the reboot? Of Breaking Bad? Yeah. Got, no, Comedy no. style. Leave it alone. <laughs> Don't ruin it. Leave it alone. What if God came down, gave you the script? Yeah, that would be You different. got the credit. Sure. Yeah. I'll sign up for that. <laughs> Is Cheers still on your list? You, know, you mentioned oh, yeah, Cheers a lot. I Cheers. I, I, yeah, once in a while, I'll put on an old episode of Cheers. And I loved how, what I really like about that show is how it's not there's some always big laughs and big jokes, but it wasn't, it wasn't joke, 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 which is the pacing of many shows today. And I, I just don't, even though I can do that and I can write that, I prefer not to watch that. Mm -hmm. so I watched Barry last night. Loved it. Loved Barry. Oh, good show. But again, it's not yeah. joke, 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 and it, but it's funny. Wait, do you prefer to write joke, 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 or? Uh, it's whatever's hand, whoever's handing me money. That's why I prefer to write for <laughs> But I, I mean, I can do it either way. When I, I personally, I, I, you know, I like dark comedy. As I've gotten older, I prefer not to write joke, joke, because uh, I don't know. I just like let the moment land. And even when you see like, if you, like my personal essays, like I'm not trying to make it, you know, I'm not trying to, to me, it's more interesting not to do that. The power of comedy is when not to use it, in my opinion. It's when not to use it. If you're really good at it, don't use it all the time. That should be on your social media. There's a tip I, I've mentioned for the day. that before. It's like that, that's where it's, it's most powerful. It's like once you get people to laugh, great. They lower the guard and then punch them right in the heart and punch them <laughs> hard, but not with a joke and let it sit there. The problem often the, in some shows is like you'll get to a moment of heart and then they ruin it with a joke. It's like, no, man, let it sit there. Let the uncomfortable play. Let people leave because that that emotion I feel is way more powerful than a laugh. It's just that, that, that uncomfortable, that awkwardness is just a, it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I say this as a, as a joke writer. Yeah. That means something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, yeah. that's all the questions we have for you today, Michael. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your stories and your insights. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good yeah. luck. All. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Subscribe, rate, and review for more episodes. Thanks for listening to the Deadline Junkies Screenwriting Podcast.
Subscribe, rate, and review for more episodes. Thanks for watching the Deadline Junkies Screenwriting Podcast.